scripture reading before the lesson this evening is Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. Romans 8, 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. If you were to go to Google right now and type in, what is my purpose? You know, ask Google. It's always a good place to go if you have any questions in life. Um, uh, you just ask Google, what is my purpose? In 1.2 seconds, Google would bring back to you 539 million results uh, for you to peruse. So if you wanted to find out what your purpose is, you could ask Google, and then Google would give you 539 different, 539 million different uh, places you could look into and read about figuring out what your purpose in life is. Uh, the sources, as I just looked at about the first five or six pages, range all over of people that want to give you advice about what your purpose is. There were your traditional media outlets like the Huffington Post, CNN, Fox had, you know, a, a place you could click and read an article about what, fi and finding your purpose in life. Uh, there were some people in the business world, in entrepreneur.com, Business Week, Forbes. All three of those had articles wanting to tell you how you can figure out what your purpose is. Uh, you could look into the religious uh, realm. There was Zen, there was Buddhist, there was Christian, uh, articles about how to find your purpose. Psychology Today even weighed in and had an information about how you could find your purpose. And there were even how-to sites, like WikiHow had a site. You, you, ever, ever heard of WikiHow? Like it's like nine steps on how to change your oil or, you know, they, they have different steps, right? And there was one, it was like 11 steps to discover your purpose. And you just like start going through WikiHow. Um, Lifehack. Reddit even had a uh, thread on figuring out what your purpose is. If you're not familiar with Reddit, uh, you're not missing anything. At the same time, do you know what the number one selling Christian book has been in the last 50 years in America? Not counting the Bible. Do you know? 32 million copies, just hardback, have been sold. 53 languages translated. You guys know what it is? Not the Bible. The Bible's number one, obviously, like trillions of cells, but the purpose-driven life. Rick Warren, Saddleback Church, Southern California. The idea of knowing your purpose touches a nerve in humanity, doesn't it? Have you ever woken up and wondered, like, am I living my purpose? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I actually being the person I'm supposed to be? Am I in the place I'm supposed to be in? Um, and... I guess it touches a nerve on a lot of people. In fact, um, you know, as I mentioned, the, the number of results of people that have asked the question, what is my purpose? We want to know that. I think it's an element that makes us human, knowing that what we're doing has value, what we're doing has meaning, uh, my life has value, knowing our purpose, knowing the direction we should be going in our life and what we should be doing, what we should be aiming at. Um, is an element that makes us different than all other living beings in this world. And as we've been uh, tracing on Sunday nights for the past few months, Romans chapter 8, we've come to the section, uh, second to last place that we're going to study, in Romans chapter 8, where um, 
Paul reveals to us our purpose, our purpose. We're going to see how this works out, but I want to remind you quickly before we get into this that our series is based upon how you and I have a new life in Jesus Christ, how we become new people, that Christianity is not just a better life, not just a changed life, but the proposition of Christianity is that it's a brand new life. And what we have, the way we find our new life is by knowing what is ultimately now true in the world because of Jesus Christ. And as you learn what is true in the world because of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection changed everything. And as you learn the new realities that have been bought by Jesus Christ, you then in response to those become a new person. Well, this one reality um, is crucial to your newness in Christianity, and that's the purpose that Jesus has bought for us. He's bought a purpose for us. He's restored us. So tonight our text, as you can tell, it's short. Um, it gives us three really, really important things. I want to give you a side note to those that have read and looked at Romans 8.28 over and over. You know where it says, all things work together for good. Romans 8.28 is like the skyscraper of Christianity. You know, people love that verse. Romans 8.29 and 30 is the foundation. And if you're going to build a skyscraper, how deep of a foundation do you have to build? Pretty deep, right? Romans 8.28 is built upon these two verses being true, understanding our purpose. So tonight it's going to be easy. We're going to look at the purpose, our pathway, and the promise that it's going to happen. Look in 29b, verse 29, the second part of verse 29, and see the purpose laid out pretty clearly. Now, we're going to get to the word predestined here in a moment, so don't get all flustered about that word showing up in the text. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But in verse 29, Paul says... <clears throat> Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now notice the purpose. What did he predestine them for? To be conformed to the image of his son. So the predestined goal, outcome, of those who would be called, chosen by God, would be that they would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Everybody good with that? Does everybody have it? Give me some visual feedback. You understand the purpose of our life is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now that verse, being conformed to the image of Jesus, is the basis of Romans 8.28. So when Romans 8.28 says that everything in life, to those that love God, work out for your good, the becoming like Jesus is the good. Sometimes we pilfer Romans 8.28 and make it mean kind of the things we want it to mean. So, you know, if you get your heart broken by a boy or a girl, we say things like, oh, all things work out together for good. So you'll just find another spouse. Don't worry about it. You know, or um, this job didn't work out. So all things work together for good. You'll find a better job somewhere else. That's not necessarily what that verse means. What that verse means is the good that God wants for us is that we would actually eventually become like Jesus. And all things in your life, to those that love God, can refine you, can train you, can guide you into becoming more like Jesus. That's the ultimate good. Now this purpose, becoming like Jesus, is not an isolated religious goal. You know, we talk in our, in our church family here, in the body of Christ, how we want to grow to become more like Jesus. But this, this idea of becoming like Jesus is not some 
isolated religious goal, nor is it just some separated moral hope, so to speak, like I just need to become a better moral person. This idea of you and I becoming like Jesus touches everything in our existence. It changes everything. You see, becoming like Jesus changes the way you relate to people. It, it, it modifies the way that you relate to people. The way you, the, uh, becoming like Jesus changes the way that you go about doing your work uh, in your workplace. It changes the way that you handle your money. It changes the way that you set your priorities with one single-minded purpose that I have set my life on the path of becoming like Jesus, all of a sudden, everything else in my life gets reoriented. Everything. The idea of me becoming like Jesus changes all things. You see, I think the reason that is is because this purpose has its roots in our creation, and it has its hope in the consummation when Jesus comes. Let's start with the roots, for instance, uh, first of all. Um, this purpose of becoming conformed to the image of Jesus has its very basis, its roots, its beginnings, in not the creation just of me, but the creation of this world. When God made humanity, when he took dirt and put it together, as we see in Scripture, and he gave that being life, he says that he made Adam and Eve, how? Genesis 1.26, in the image of God. In the image of God. From the very beginning, you and I were designed, created to look like, to reflect, to mirror what God is like. So in humanity's very best moments, what we're doing is reflecting the goodness of God. In our worst moments, we're reflecting that we have taken that mirror that we're supposed to reflect God and turned it around so it reflects nothing anymore. That's sinfulness. But you and I were meant as mirrors to receive the image of God and reflect it to the world. So when God comes around and says, hey, now in Jesus Christ, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, as Christians, you can actually have a purpose that's not just some new contemporary purpose. It's rooted in the very basis of humanity's creation. It's bringing us back to what we were always supposed to be. Now, the second thing is this. So it has its roots in what we were always designed to be, but it has its hope and what is not yet fulfilled, and in the cons what we call the consummation of the world, when Jesus returns, um, 1 John chapter 3 says that the, at the coming of Jesus, you and I will be made to be exactly like him. Paul would say it in Philippians chapter 3 this way, that when he comes, we don't know exactly what it's gonna, he's going to be like, but we know that our bodies will be transformed to be like him. That's going to happen. And we can have a hope in that. This purpose is not going to be fulfilled in us until the very end. And so that serves us one of two ways. If you are right now restless because you're not yet like Jesus, if that drives you crazy a little bit, if that frustrates you, if you wake up daily and say, here's who Jesus is, here's what Jesus is supposed to, or Jesus is like, and I'm not like that yet, and that bothers you and that frustrates you, this message that this, um, this purpose will be fulfilled in us should calm you down should help you take a deep breath, slow down, and realize that it is coming. It's a promise of God that it's coming. Now, on the other side, let's say you're not restless. Let's say you don't have this holy restlessness that, want, that drives you to say, I want to be more like Jesus. But maybe you've become complacent. 
Maybe you sort of relaxed, let the foot off the gas a little bit, just kind of forgotten about what's most important. Maybe let go of this purpose in your life. What this idea presents to you is also reminds us that we haven't arrived yet. That there yet is still ways for us to grow to become more like Jesus. And so it motivates us to keep going. So what Paul is doing here in light of the death, burial, and resurrection is reorienting our minds and our lives around one single purpose. That we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now the second thing he does for us is he tells us actually the pathway for this to happen. In verse 30 he lays out an order of things. If you read it with me. He says, and those whom he predestined, I'll explain that in just a moment. He also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Uh, The predestined there at the beginning, we'll explain in just a moment. But there's three things he says that happen in order. And these are in succession. These are in order. He says, you're called you're justified, and then you're glorified. And this is the pathway that you and I must take if we're going to live this purpose out, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Um, It's the lofty goal of most Christians when they come into an awareness of becoming a Christian and, and commit their lives to that, that we are to be like Jesus. But what I find in a lot of people is sort of this gap that exists between I know I should be like Jesus, but I don't know how to get there. Well, Paul has three things for us. Called justified and glorified let's walk through what they mean the word called just means to be summoned so it's like uh, what you would do if you pulled up your phone now and clicked the button on uber and said hey i'd like somebody to pick me up you have called upon somebody to come get you you've summoned a service you've summoned for something to be responded to the idea of being called here is that you and i are called people by the gospel the message of the gospel, that God created us to be enjoyed in fellowship with him, and that we, as, as humanity, turned our back on that, and through sin, we deserve to be um, exiled away from him. But him, not wanting that to be the case, sent his righteous son, Jesus, to live the perfect life for us, to die the death we deserve to die, and gave to us what we now call grace so that we can be reconciled, the gospel. That message calls us But not everybody responds to it, do they? This is why you see when you read uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus spends so much time emphasizing the importance of how we hear. He would say over and over this line, He who has ears to hear, let that person hear. The parable of the soils. Sower goes out to sow. There's a sower in the story, there's seed in the story, there's dirt in the story, there's different kinds of soil. You know, the main point of that story is this. Pay attention to the kind of hearing you have. Those soils represent the way that you hear and your ability to receive the life-changing effect of the gospel, the, the reception. Jesus would say at the end of that, take heed how you hear. The man who has a hardened soil can't hear the gospel. The, man who, or the person who has a lot of rocks in his soil doesn't have any room for the gospel to come in. The person who has uh, thorns and thistles competing desires can receive the gospel. He's a desirous person that, that says this is true, but he has other things that calls, calls his attention. But there's one soil that is receptive and can bear fruit. And at the end of that, he says, listen, it's important you pay attention to how you hear 
You and I have to be people that listen carefully. And what you notice here, if, if, do you notice the, the, the pronoun that is presented before each of these in verse 30? Those whom he predestined, whom he called, whom he justified, and whom he glorified. That's a really important, subtle point that we've got to pay attention to. And the point is this, that it must be actually God through his gospel that calls you to be a Christian. Now, why would that matter? Well, you will get, you will become the very thing that called you. You will value the thing that called you. And so if you have become a Christian, if you have responded to the call of being a Christian based solely upon, let's say, relationships. My mom and dad are Christians, and I know that I'll disappoint them if I don't become a Christian, so I'm going to respond to the call of my parents to become a Christian. Guess what purpose you're going to live for? Your parents, right? And the moment you have some distance from them or the moment you stop caring about what they think of your life, what have you lost now? Your purpose of being a Christian. Or let's say you say, you know what? I see that it's socially respectable and it has good moral teaching and people will look up to me if I become a Christian. I should do that. I'm going to be a Christian so that I will have high moral standards and people will respect me for that. If the call of social standing draws you into Christianity, what's going to be your purpose in life? In every room, in every setting, I need to have the highest morals and people need to respect me. And the moment you lose social standing and respect, and maybe the moment you lose the, the idea, maybe you slip up once and you don't have the morals that people think you should have, you've lost your purpose. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, let's say you uh, come to Christianity just to exalt yourself. People will be impressed by me if I'm a Christian. That's my purpose. You see, my point is whatever calls you will become your purpose. You've got to ask yourself, what has called me to become a Christian? When the gospel calls you, when the gospel calls you, it and it alone will be your purpose. Okay, so that's your calling. The second word he uses is justified, and that is a legal term. He uses very specifically a legal term. He doesn't say those who are called have been washed here in this text. Those who have called have been sanctified. Those who have called have been changed. Those who have called have been renewed. He doesn't use words like that. He specifically uses the legal phrase. Those whom he has called, he has legally justified. That word legally means to declare someone right. And here's the deal with justification. It's more than just forgiveness. Now, on the airways of Christianity, the word forgiveness gets used mostly when we describe the experience of being a Christian. It's God's forgiveness, the blood of Christ that forgives us. But in justification, it's not just you're let off the hook, you're forgiven. It's not just that you're released innocently. To be justified is to actually be proven what? Come on, you enjoy it. <laughs> you enjoy the experience, right? Of being proven right. That's what it means to be justified. Have you ever uh, maybe made a claim about something and people scoffed at it and said, that's not right. You ever had a spouse do that? And then a day or two later, it finds out that you're right. Tell me, how do you feel when that happens? Come on. Not too shabby, huh? You kids with your parents, you ever done something? And they say, ah, you can't do that. And then you find out two or three days later you were right. Boy, doesn't that scratch an itch in us? What is that? It's not just that you're innocent. And it's not just that somebody pardoned you. What is it? 
is that somebody looked at you and said, hey, guess what? You're right. What you are, what you thought, what you said is the right thing. Now, why does that matter? Because here's how most of us interact with God. We tiptoe around the throne of grace and we just hope that he'll continue to be gracious enough to pardon us. And all we have in our experience with God is forgiveness. And in forgiveness, we avoid oftentimes the one that's forgiven us because we have an awkward experience with them. They were right, we were wrong, but they let us off the hook. Now they got some bargaining chips over us. Tell me that didn't describe some of our relationships with God. Okay? Here's what Paul's saying to you. He called you by the gospel. And when the gospel draws you in, he, he justifies you. Legally looks at you and say, who you are and what you are is right. So the experience of shame and the experience of hiding yourself because you've been forgiven doesn't exist in the realm of Christianity anymore. This isn't the Old Testament where year by year we bring sacrifices and hope that God will put it on the altar and it's enough for God. That's not what it is anymore. By the blood of Jesus Christ and the gift of his righteousness, God looks at you and says, who you are and what you are in my presence is something I delight in, something I like, something I cherish, something that I think is right and good. And it's solid because who's it based upon? Who's your justification based upon? Jesus Christ. So you stand in front of God and God looks at you and says, you are a justified person. Like, yeah, you're right. That's the experience. Now, how does that help us in our purpose of becoming like Jesus? Let me explain it. Your correct understanding of justification is the fuel for your sanctification. Because when you stand in the presence of God out of deep humility and great amounts of gratitude, because Jesus Christ hasn't just let you off the hook and pardon you so that you could run away from God and continue to have fun but not experience guilt, that's not what it is. In Jesus Christ, he has given us the opportunity to stand in front of God and enjoy fellowship with one who says, I look at you and think that you're right, you're good. And that draws you closer and closer to God. And when you know the, the, the true understanding of justification, it fuels you to be sanctified. Because here's what it does. When you know you are justified in the blood of Jesus, you're now free to confess to God all of the sin that you still possess. All the struggles, all the darkness, all the doubts, all the fears. You're now free because I've got justification in Jesus. I can get as close to the Father as possible and tell Him what's still broken in me. Those of us that just experience God on a pardon level, on a forgiveness level, will hide from him because we're not sure that he'll forgive all of our sins, but he's forgiven some of them, so we just feel okay with him. But when you understand biblical justification, you come close to God, and you tell him all that's wrong in, you, in hopes that he'll continue to free you in sanctification. Do you see how a biblical understanding of justification helps you live your purpose of becoming like Jesus? It gets rid of the fear you have of confessing your sin. And finally, the third word is this, called, justified, and you are glorified. The word glorified just means the final state of being what you're supposed to be. There's a real you inside of all of us, a real you inside of each one of you. 
And sin makes us live a fake us, a false us. The word glory just means to be the real you. And we've got an awesome opportunity in our culture right now to capitalize on this good biblical teaching because our world loves what we now phrase as authenticity. You know, we, we, we love that. You know, you be you. I, I, Elena shops at Justice now. You, ugh. That store is brutal. But like everything, Mike's like, he just blacked out. <laughs> everything in Justice is like, you be you. You're the only you. You know, you know, the you that is you is the great you that's you. You know, like they just love that. We got a great opportunity in our culture right now to capitalize on this teaching because here's the deal. I want Elena and everyone else here to know that there is a real you inside of you. But that's not some presumptuous, braggadocious, arrogant, like you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to be me. No, that's still your sin. You're acting like a fool. The real you in you is the non-distorted by sin you. And guess what? You don't even know that you yet. It's not until you get close to who God is that you begin to discover who that is. And I believe that's what heaven is. When you stand in front of God and the veil is removed finally from our eyes and we see him for who he is. And he burns out of us all the fake that's still in us. All the sin, all the brokenness. And we become us. And what he says about the nation of Israel when they um, made the golden calf and they begin to ascribe to the golden calf, this is the God that led us out of Egypt. That's not true, right? Everybody does agree? The golden calf didn't lead them out of G Egypt. God did. When they said that, God says in Psalm, I think, 106, you exchanged your glory for the glory of a calf or a cow. And his point is this. You've given up being the real you. When God says your purpose is to be conformed to the image of Christ, he's not saying that there's one mold and everybody just becomes like the same person. What he's saying is Christ was the only person who was authentic, who lived without a distorted version of himself. This should, this should elicit excitement in us, that there is inside of you a person you don't even know yet that is, that, that is covered over right now with brokenness and sin that God wants to get rid of. So that the real version of you that doesn't have anger, that doesn't have bitterness, that isn't afraid of people, that doesn't lie and steal and cheat, can come alive and become real. That's you. And he promises that we've been called, responding to the gospel. We have been biblically justified, which frees us to get as close to the light as possible without fear. And we will eventually be glorified, which means the final true version of us will come alive. Let me tell you, heaven's going to be awesome because we're going to get to know each other in ways that we still don't know each other. It's going to be great. Now let me finish with the promise because I'm blazing through some time here. What's the promise? Okay, let's deal with the word predestined, right? Everybody, who makes us shiver. It really shouldn't. Verse 29, just read this with me and logically listen how the word is used. For those whom he foreknew, is that quality to, describing you or God? Who he foreknew. Describing God, right? His omniscience. He knows all things. Those whom he has known from all eternity past, he, read this with me, there's no commas. He predestined to become like Jesus. What did God predestine? You tell me. I'm not going to tell you that. What did God predestine? You to become what? Like Jesus. What did God fix in the eternal realm of the world for all people who would be called to become what? 
it has been fixed, predetermined, predestined. Here's what you're supposed to get out of this verse. Not the eebie-jeebies, which is like, am I one or not? I don't know. I mean, sometimes I really struggle with sin. Does that mean I'm out? Am I in? Am I predetermined? Am I not predetermined? You know what that is? A distorted version of obsessing with self and thinking about a biblical doctrine. Imagine us taking a biblical doctrine and making it about us. It's not about us. God says, I have fixed an eternity. My word will leave my mouth and will not return void. That those who are called, who respond with listening ears to the gospel, I have predetermined those people that respond will become like Jesus. You know what this verse is supposed to do? Instill in you an unshakable confidence that it's going to happen. That is going to happen. The impact of predestination in this text is to tell you that you, without a doubt, without a shred of doubt, will eventually become like Jesus. It is predetermined, predecided, prefixed from eternity past that you will become like him. You see this in the tense of the word, glorified. Go back and look at the end of verse 29. Does he say that you will become eventually someday glorified? How does he say it? Those whom he has foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 30, the end of verse 30. And those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified, past tense. From God's vantage point out of space and time, this has already happened. Does God have any doubt that you will become like Jesus? One shred of doubt. Is God wondering, are they going to make it? Are they going to get it? Is God sitting up there in heaven saying, it's hard to become like Jesus. It's a high lofty purpose. I just don't know, Tim, if you're going to get there or not. Is God wondering that? Why are you? Why are you shaking about that? You see, our shaking is because we look at our own frailty and say, I can't do it. Who should we be looking at? Does God's word leave his mouth and return void? Do you believe that? Did God say that if you're one of his called, if you respond to the gospel, you will become like Jesus? Now hold yourself accountable. If you believe that God's word will not return void and you believe his word said if you become his child, you will eventually someday be like Jesus. Will you become like Jesus someday? Don't ever doubt that. Don't ever. Have all the hope in the world that this purpose is tied to the end of the world and I am striving for a purpose that will not be completed. Think about this. Uh, LeBron James had a purpose, right? What was his purpose when we went back to Cleveland? To win a championship. He did it, right? I had a few guys in my house. I even lifted Aaron Davis off the ground when it happened. I was so excited. Remember that, Aaron? I don't think he's ever been hugged that hard, Candy. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. LeBron James had a purpose. Now let me ask you something. What's LeBron James going to do next year? And how many of you, like, basketball fans kind of missed that moment? Todd, you kind of missed that moment already a little bit? But, 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 but my point is, like, like you kind of wish you could relive it, right? Todd's been on YouTube probably watching clips of it the last month, like, just reliving the moment. Because that purpose was short-term. You have a purpose that is etched in eternity. So you have something you can hope for, something you can strive for, you have been given a fearlessness because of justification to pursue it without fear. And confidence that you will not fail because of Jesus Christ. You have a purpose that you can live and never stop.
That's a new purpose, isn't it? Boy, that's awesome in the resurrection of Jesus. I think there's a logical question that will be done. Almost ready, guys. Why would God go to all this trouble for us? Why? The answer is actually in the text when he says this at the end of verse 29. In order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. The firstborn. The one that opened the pathway for all others to come behind him. Many brothers. He wants to be the firstborn of many behind him. Family members. Abundant family members. You see, that before the world ever began, God existed as in a community, in Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, an eternal family that loved and submitted to each other. And out of love, they wanted to share love. And so it makes sense that God would naturally make a world in which he would make beings to share his love with, right? Just like why parents want to have a child, they want out of love in their marriage, they want to share that love with one. God naturally wanted a people that he could relate to, love for, love and care for. And you and I, as the created beings of God, out of love, have rejected that love and said, we can find life our own way. We, like the prodigal, took our inheritance, took the gifts and not the giver, and wasted every penny on our indulgence. But unlike the story of the prodigal son, you and I actually have an older brother, a firstborn brother, that isn't back at the ranch scornfully wishing our demise. And when we return, wishing we wouldn't have come back. You see, the story of the prodigal son actually isn't just that the older brother's happy that we came back. The true older brother is one that came to find us. That's what the older brother should have done. And not just be happy that the younger brother came back. He should have went and found him. You and I have an older brother that came and found us and saved us. And told us of a father waiting on the front porch, looking out over the hill with the fullness of love saying, please come back, son. And this older brother came out and brought us back at infinite cost to him. You know, the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, it cost him for the younger brother to come back, right? The inheritance was divided in half. The younger brother got his half. And so when the calf was killed for the younger brother to celebrate, who did that cost? It cost the older brother. That was his calf. That's his farm now. That's his place. But we have an older brother that didn't just receive us back at the cost of a cow. He received us back at the cost of his life. And he said, come with me. Let me show you a love that you've forgotten about, that you have no clue that can change your life. See, all of us have purposes and goals and objectives. Well, let me tell you something. Until you get the purpose of your life fixed in eternity... You'll either be disappointed because you don't make it or you'll be arrogant and inflated because you do. But it's all short term. Have a, have a purpose that is etched in eternity that keeps you humble because you can't do it on your own and gives you the utmost confidence because of a God who's going to do it with you and for you as you walk hand in hand. That's a great purpose and we want you to have that. If you don't have it, uh, let's stand and sing. You come forward.